Before we uh, look into 1 Thessalonians 4, and you can turn there in your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12 once you get there. Uh, I would like to start us off today by going to God in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we come before you as grass, as flowers of the field in our weakness. And uh, we long for you to use us in our existence to honor and glorify you. I pray for those in the sound of my voice today that you would encourage their hearts, comfort them, and strengthen them so that they might point others to you. As we look at the text of Scripture at this moment, Father, I pray that your Spirit would use it in unusual ways. May it not just be the voice of a preacher, but may it be true to your Word. Thank you for helping me understand this text of Scripture, I believe. I pray that I might clearly communicate it. Then, Lord, through your Spirit, would you use it like a sharp scalpel to cut down into our hearts to expose ways in which we need to grow, to encourage people who are serving you faithfully. And Lord, if something that we hold on to and we value at this point is against what the Scripture teaches, I pray that we would gladly uh, surrender that to you today. We thank you for this and pray that you would uh, bless our time together in the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to these verses, verses 9 through 12. Uh, Paul will continue his discussion of how the Thessalonians should live in order to please God. I said uh, from chapter 4 to chapter 5, there's several, I've counted five characteristics of those different ways that we need to live in order to please God. Uh, and so last week, we looked at chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. If you weren't here last week, even if you were, it's a good reminder to us. Uh, in these verses, P Paul calls the church to holiness. Believers should strive for moral excellence in the way that they treat other people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, according to this text. And so as you evaluate your life this past week, are you striving for moral excellence in the way you treat other people? Now, Paul gave us several reasons in verses 7 and 8 why we need to strive for moral excellence in the way we treat other people. Uh, and those can be summarized this way. One, God has called us not in impurity, but he has called us in holiness. That's the nature of his calling. When we are converted, we are converted into holiness, the holiness of Christ. And so we should live in holy ways. He then, uh, near the end of that passage, he says we also uh, have been given a gift. We've been given the Holy Spirit, which should enable us or strengthen us in our day-to-day -day lives to live morally pure lives. And then uh, finally in that text, he also reminds us of the future uh, when he says that the, in the middle of verse 6, the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. We should strive for moral excellence in the way we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ because one day the Lord Jesus will come and he will avenge those who defraud others. And uh, we even read a, a little bit about that in the psalm, I think, today, or saying about it. This week, 
we'll look at another way that Paul describes the necessary character of those who follow Christ. At first glance, I think it might be a little confusing to see how verses 9 through 12 fit together. It seemed to me, and even as after much study, that Paul is driving home two different things here. Uh, in verses 9 and 10, he'll talk to us about brotherly love, but then in verses 11 and 12, uh, it looks like he's talking about our civil responsibilities or how we should treat other people in public. Uh, however, I believe that foundationally, all of verses 9 through 12 are intended as one section or about one main topic, and the topic is brotherly love. So as we go through these verses, verses 9 through 12, Paul will describe here a certain kind of love that we must demonstrate if we're going to be pleasing to God. And the love is or comes from the same term that we would get the English word Philadelphia from. It's a certain type of love. It's brotherly love. The two greatest commandments that we studied last Sunday night were about loving God and loving your neighbor. And loving your neighbor starts with loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it will be with some urgency that we come to this text this morning and we consider what Paul the Apostle says about loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we come to the text, look with me first at verse 9. Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. We'll have three points this morning in the sermon. It'll go pretty quickly. It's just a few verses. The first point is the need for mutual love, verses 9 and 10. The need for mutual or brotherly love. Here it's apparent that Paul is beginning a new section. Uh, you can see that with the very first words, peri day in, the, in Greek, translated often in English Bibles, now concerning. You see that in verse 9? Now concerning brotherly love. You see that Paul uses this same marker of transition later on as well. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers. This is a favorite marker of transition for the Apostle Paul. He uses it often, actually. If you remember in our first Corinthians study, in the second half of that book, over and over and over again, Paul says, now concerning... Remember, meat offered to idols. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Uh, in that epistle, Paul uses this phrase as a marker of when he is answering a question that the Corinthians gave him in a letter. Remember, they wrote a letter to Paul, and he answers the questions. Now concerning this topic. In 1 Thessalonians, it does not appear that the Thessalonians had sent Paul a letter. But I think it's better to say that he's responding to a report that Timothy had given to them or to him about their character. Okay, and so now, when he's responding to this report from Timothy, and he, he's addressing areas where they need to grow in some way or another, he says, now concern it. Okay, so you've got these topic markers. And at first, as we're looking at verses 9 and 10, it appears that Timothy had given Paul a good report about the Thessalonians and how they had treated each other fairly. Uh, you can see this when he says at the beginning, I, I don't even need to write this to you. I, I think it's very interesting 
that Paul will often say that in writing. Okay, You don't even need for me to write about this, but I'm going to anyway. Okay, Now, he says not only that he doesn't need to write to them, he says also that they, uh, in this particular subject, have been taught by God. You see that in your Bible? Verse 9, they've been taught by God to love one another. And actually, those words, have been taught by God, reflect one compound word in the original. It could be translated literally, God taught. You are God taught when it comes to loving other brothers and sisters in the Lord. But, you know, as we come to this word, it's, it's a little hard for us to process because it's a very rare word. As a matter of fact, in my study, I looked the entire way through the Old New Testament using Bible software, and I didn't see this word anywhere else at all in the Old or the New Testament. One word, you're God-taught. And so as you read the commentators here, they're, they're just really perplexed as to what this, what this means. Where did Paul get this word? Why is he using it with them? In my opinion, the answer is found in the Old Testament. So I'm going to ask you to turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54 with me for just one moment. Isaiah 54. Although this compound word, God taught, is not used anywhere else in the Bible, it's two parts God and taught are used in two separate words in this one text I'm going to read to you in the Septuagint. So look with me at Isaiah 54, and uh, before we read the verse, let me just say that this is an important chapter in the Old Testament. This is a chapter where God's talking about an eternal covenant that he made with the Israelite people, where he will in the future bring them peace. Their offspring will possess the nations, it says in verse 3. In verse 17, he says, there's coming a day when no weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed. God is going to come, and he's going to deliver Israel. He'll minister to them in the future. Now look at verse 13, one of those blessings. All your children will be, you can be translated this literally, will be God-taught and shall be uh, the peace of your children, and great shall be the peace of your children. I believe that's this passage that Paul might have in mind when he uses and, and joins these two words together. You're God-taught. So as we consider what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians about brotherly love, he says, I don't even need to address you about this because God is fulfilling this sort of covenant among you, and he's teaching you himself about the need for brotherly love. Now, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll see another reason why Paul doesn't have to say anything about this, and that is because you're already exceeding in this to all the churches of Macedonia. You see that there? Go back to 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9. He says, uh, not only are you God-taught, you are demonstrating brotherly love all throughout Macedonia. Now, again, just as a reminder, Macedonia is the province where the city of Thessalonica is located. It's the region or the greater area, and Thessalonica is a city in there. But so, too, are cities like 
Philippi and Berea and other cities like that in Macedonia. And so Paul says, and doesn't give us a lot of detail here, he says, some way, somehow, this little band of followers, this little church was showing love toward believers in other towns and cities all throughout Macedonia and Achaia. So indeed, some things were going right here in the Thessalonian church because their love went beyond their own little cell group in Thessalonica, and they are ministering maybe to travelers, believers who come into the city from different places, or as they travel, they're ministering, they're loving on other brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord. Now, although these things are true, Paul does end with an admonition. It's easy to miss it. He says, although this is true, I don't need to write to you. You're God-taught, and you're demonstrating love to all of Macedonia. I would uh, exhort you to abound more and more, to do so more and more, the text says. To do so more and more. He encourages them to grow in brotherly love, to demonstrate it more and more to other believers. In other words, I think Paul is saying here is this is the sort of thing that you can never have too much of. You never never have too much of this love. Yes, you're doing an outstanding job in loving, especially those people from Macedonia, but you need to abound more and more. You know, as a parent of five children, I really enjoy moments when one of my children cares for and watches out for another one of my children. Not too long ago, we, were, we took a trip to Disney World, and uh, we enjoyed that together. And, and, you know, there are all kinds of moments when you travel, all kinds of discipleship opportunities. Uh, sometimes my children are discipling me uh, in the process, too. You know, small little vehicle traveling together. And one of the highlights for me was we were going into this one particular rest area, and it was a little abnormal for my family, but I remember in particular one of my children caring for and looking out for another one of my children. Okay, normally it's, you know, knock the kid over who's in your way to get to the food or the restroom, but in this case, caring for, watching out, protecting another child. Those moments, although rare, are things that we want to see more and more and more in parenting. The same should be true of the way we treat brothers and sisters in Christ. If it could be said of us that we wouldn't need a letter, Colonial Baptist Church, that we are God-taught when it comes to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we're successfully loving brothers and sisters all throughout our region or our state, might we not be content with that? But may we desire to grow more and more. And so this first point I see is the need of mutual love. Now, that question or that statement, do so more and more, should beg the question, how can we do this more and more? How can we grow in it? And I think that's what Paul gives us in verse 11. Okay, so uh, in verse 11, I, I want to look at the demonstration of mutual love. So look there with me. It says, and to inspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. In verse 11, Paul describes more about how brotherly love demonstrates itself in the Thessalonian community. You say, what does brotherly love look, at, look like? I say, look at verse 11. 
You'd say, well, how can you be sure this is still about brotherly love? It seems to be that Paul's changing here. Well, I'll just point out a few things to you. First of all, I want you to see in your Bible that Paul begins writing in very parallel ways using infinitives. Okay, so you see the word to, T-O, over and over again in this passage because Paul is just making these parallel statements. So look at the end of verse 10. Brothers, to do this. What's this? To demonstrate brotherly love. To do this more and more. Then look at verse 11. To aspire. To live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. And to work with your own hands. See, these four expressions, to do so more and more, to aspire, to mind, and to work, are parallel. And in my opinion, they are put here because Paul sees, verse 11, these three things as a natural extension of the call to love more and more. In other words, these are natural, tangible ways that we can show brotherly love toward each other. And these are ways in which, I think, for the most part, any one of us can grow. So if you're going to show brotherly love to others in this assembly, you will have to make choices to live in the following three ways. Look first at verse 11, the first part. You will need to commit to live peaceably. Live peaceably. Paul says the commitment to mutual love means that we will live peaceably or quietly. Now, this little phrase is a bit difficult to understand at first. He says, uh, and I want you to feel it, okay? He says, and to aspire, okay? So we are to aspire to something. But then what he says seems to be a contradiction, okay? Aspire, you know, stir yourself towards something, achieving something. And what is the something? Living the quiet life. It's kind of like saying, be agitated for not getting agitated. See that? Aspire to live quietly. One commentator by the name of Jeffrey Wema here gives us uh, some helpful research that he did in Philo, the work of Philo, a Jewish writer during this era who used the quiet life concept in his writing. He said this, he said, Philo contrasts a quiet life with a vulgar man who spends his days meddling, running around in public in theaters, tribunals, councils, and assemblies, meetings and consultations of all sorts. He prattles on without moderation, fruitless to no end. He confuses and stirs up everything. Okay, so he's saying, for Philo as a writer, this is the opposite of the quiet life. Some believers mistakenly feel that successful Christian living is dramatic, dynamic, and sudden. But this text speaks of the value of steady obedience to daily Christian living. It's like Paul says, you had an amazing start. Now, I desire that you demonstrate consistent, careful, quiet harmony 
with others in the assembly. In my opinion, the primary context of this statement has to do with the way believers treat each other. Each other. That's why I think this is still about brotherly love. Live, and it can be translated, live silently. Live quietly. And I think that the object that Paul primarily has in mind is in the way you treat other brothers and sisters in Christ. So this text is primarily about being good church members, not good citizens. I think this concept in other places can be used to describe the way we would treat authorities in our government, in our city, our culture. And so I think what Paul is demonstrating here is the commitment that we should have to live as quietly and as peaceably as we can with other brothers and sisters in the Lord in our local assemblies. We should give to each other. We should be kind to each other. We should forgive each other as much as we can. We should love each other. We should pray for each other. And we should care for each other instead of slandering each other, talking not to each other, but about each other, and insisting on our own rights with each other. Sadly, I think that many believers, many believers are not as ambitious in these sort of ways today. Some believers look for any way that they can disagree with another Christian, and they tweet it out. They tweet it out so that the whole world can see the way I disagree with this Christian. And what do we think, how do we think the world's going to take that? They're going to take it, and they're going to think, why would I want any part and that group of people, they're always talking about how they disagree. They're always attacking each other, criticizing each other. And I think it has or does make a lasting impact on that. It, by the time we get to the end of verse 12, actually the first part of verse 12, I think you will see that that would be one of the reasons Paul would say you, you can't do this to one another. So instead, we must be ambitious about living quietly with other believers. Secondly, Paul says that a commitment to mutual love means that we will mind our own affairs. I think this is intended for those people among us, believers, who are busybodies and are meddlers, those who have more time to interfere with other believers' lives and to make sure of their own business and their own walk with God. We should focus on our own matters, our own walk with God, not the way other people are not following Christ. So Paul says this. He says, I want you to aspire to something, to live silently with your brothers, not to be nosy in their affairs, 
and, ready for the third one? To work with your hands. To work with your hands. What does that have to do with brotherly love, right? Like, man, this pastor, he's like stretching it up there. All about brotherly love and to work with your hands. That sounds so old-fashioned, doesn't it? Well, it is. It's like at least 2,000 years old. Work with your own hands. So I want to look at this with you a little bit more. We do not know the exact situation that Paul's addressing here, but apparently it is a significant issue in the church at Thessalonica because Paul keeps mentioning it as he goes throughout this letter and the next. So look at chapter 5, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Those who are lazy. The opposite of those who are the same as the stated opposite way, those who don't work with their hands. Admonish them, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica. Then go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. There's a large section about this in verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. Not working. And not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how, uh, how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked. That's the opposite of being idle. We worked night and day. That, here's the purpose, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly. Sound like a similar word? Quietly peaceably, and to earn their own living. This continues to be a problem in the church of Thessalonica so that later on this same year, I think he writes 2 Thessalonians, he requires them to keep away from idle believers. Stay away from them. And he lays out this command that he given to them before. If someone's not going to work, they shouldn't eat. Shouldn't eat. What is clear is that some believers or believer in Thessalonica was not working, but was living off the generosity of other believers in the church. I liked how one commentator said this, Ben Witherington. He said it this way. He said, love of fellow believers is shown by not sponging off them when one can work and by not relying on a patronage situation to take care of of one's material needs. Instead, men and women, we should be known for our strong and excellent work ethic and commitment to caring for, for ourselves. On Father's Day, I'll just say I am thankful for the work ethic my father taught me. He taught me all throughout my life. Still, still continues to teach me work ethic. 
Remember, my father helped me land my first real job. It was uh, the summer before I went to Bible college at Allied Van Lines, which is where my father worked for years. And uh, I remember him preparing me for the first day on the job. He said, uh, Brent, they're going to push you. They're going to test you. And so what I need you to do is always stay moving, never quit, hustle. And he said, eventually, they will probably come to respect you. And uh, for the most part, he was right. They did push and stretch, and uh, I did try to work hard. Remember, on the last day of work, I'd worked there for four summers through Bible college. Last day, my dad came out onto the work site to congratulate me in the sense. And uh, we were wrapping up the day in about eight or nine at night. I've been working all day. It was a hard day. And my dad came to me and he said, uh, Brent, I just want you to know one thing as we leave here. He said, just remember that if this ministry thing doesn't work out, I can always get you this job. <laughs> I can always get you this job. And so even at that point, he was teaching me to work hard. I like how John Piper describes the work ethic of believers. He says, the ditches that we dig should be straight. The cabinet corners that we make should be flush. Our surgical incisions should be tiny and neat. We need to work with excellence, work with our own hands. That's what Paul says. So, live peaceably. Don't be nosy. Don't be lazy. This is the demonstration of love. Or this is how mutual love manifests itself in our everyday life. At least the one last aspect of love, and I call it the value of love, verse 12. And I want to read it with you. Verse 12 says, So that you may walk properly before outsiders, and you could translate, you could add, so that you would be dependent on no one. So Paul ends here by stressing or demonstrating why living quietly, not being nosy, and not being lazy is important. There are two purposes that have to do with our external and our internal relationships. First, Paul says, if we live this way, then we will be walking properly before outsiders. These are unbelievers, those who do not know Jesus Christ. What we need to understand then, and what Paul is saying, is that the way we live daily communicates to unbelievers around us. So men and women, grass that is eight inches tall does not adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're able to mow your grass and you don't, that gives unbelievers a terrible perspective of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. A gutter falling off my house because I'm too lazy to fix it does not give outsiders the right impression of followers of Jesus Christ. To enter into the latest neighborhood gossip and slander in the first 30 seconds of a conversation 
does not portray how the gospel changes lives. Always causing trouble in city councils is a terrible testimony of Christ. A guiding rule here, I think, for us is if, if, if there is a case where we have to say something negative in a city council, we should look for like 10 positive ways to serve the members of that council. And if you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ by slandering them, demeaning them, nosing into their business, and mooching off of them, unbelievers will want no part of the gospel. Why would they? If we can't live quietly with each other. If we can't meet our own needs so we're not mooching off of other believers. But when we are lazy or nosy or unruly, we're not walking properly before outsiders and are portraying to them that salvation in Christ has not changed us. In other words, the way we live in the church affects the church. It's a problem for our mission. It's a serious problem when believers live in undisciplined, nosy, and self-centered ways. It destroys our ability to impact others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the external value of living in brotherly love. The internal value is the very next purpose statement, and be dependent on no one. Finally here, Paul speaks of the internal value of working with our own hands. When we work hard to support ourselves, we will not be financially dependent on others in the assembly for our living. We will not be a continual drain on the finances or generosity of other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this is different than if you can't work physically. This is not addressed to that situation, but this is about the person who can work physically, who can work to support himself, but chooses instead not to work and to live off of the generosity of some other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul says his final purpose is that you would be dependent on no one. And men and women, this is the example that Paul himself gave us. Uh, just look for a second. I want you to see how this book just keeps weaving together. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. 2, verse 9. Paul says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul himself already told them what working hard to support yourself looked like. And so now he calls the church to do the same. Today we have described brotherly love in ways that perhaps you've never considered before. I know I hadn't. Brotherly love requires us to aspire to live quietly or silently with other brothers and sisters. Brotherly love requires us not to nose ourselves into their affairs. And brotherly love requires that we work with our hands 
to support ourselves so that we don't have to live off their generosity. Men and women, we, we must strive to love our brothers in Christ more than we love our own comforts, our own agendas, and our own name. May we do so more and more. Let's pray together. Father, this is not the sort of aspiration that our culture speaks of. We aspire to great things, lofty things, high things, self-promoting things. This is not something that even other brothers and sisters in Christ normally proclaim today, to aspire to live peaceably to mind our own affairs, and to work with our hands. But Father, may our aspirations be for how can I demonstrate Philadelphia? How can I love in supernatural ways members of the body of Christ that I'm a part of? Oh, Father, help us, help me to love my brothers and sisters so that I put away my own comforts, my own goals, my own dreams about life and ministry to serve and to love and to care for and to be kind to, and to speak highly of my brother and sister. Or may this be true of all of us. Thank you for your spirit and how he can make us grow. And I pray, Lord, that as outsiders see Colonial Baptist Church, that they would have no reason to question whether the gospel can save and change people's lives. God, do this for the glory of your own name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.